Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles that I've seen that week. You can get them all by signing up for that newsletter. This week, I had two columns out. The newsletter's on a hiatus until the first of the year. I had a column out about my prediction that Facebook will have its power broken during this next decade, the 2020s. The second column that I put out was my second prediction about this next year, where I think that Donald Trump will end up getting re-elected. It is my way too early um, prediction for the 2020 election that I will probably regret at various points throughout the year just because every campaign has its ups and downs. But just eyeballing it from this in, this distance, I think Trump should be favored to win re-election. And as I said, there's no newsletter to cover this past week. It says I'm off due to Christmas week, and I'm off this following week due to the New Year celebration. So if any of that interests you, and if you want to get any of that, or you want to look into it after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. It's just the easiest way for me to get my columns and analysis to you. That list that I have on there isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. Just if you like what you hear here, you want to get more of it, you can sign up there. Finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews are really helpful. They help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm and the iTunes store and elsewhere. So I look forward to hearing you in those reviews. I look at them. I listen to the feedback. Made some make some changes to the show as I go along based on what I'm hearing. So I'm always looking forward to hearing from you guys, and I like getting those reviews. All right, so we're going to jump into the show this week. We're going to cover some of those predictions. I'm going to talk through both of the columns and just sort of talk through some of the predictions that I have both for this upcoming year and in overall in the 2020s because some of them are a little bit broader than that. So we're going to cover Facebook and social media and why I think over the next decade, both of those are going to lose their monopoly power over both culture and the business world. I think we're going to see... Uh, just a lot more competitors pop up that breaks that down where you see more niche areas open up that allow people to jump in. Second up, is gonna we're going to talk about the 2020 election. We're going to sort of skip a little bit of just talking through impeachment just because there's no, been nothing new this past week. It's just all the same. Since Congress is out, there's nothing new to talk through on that front. But I do think that it will affect the 2020 election just because it's giving us some data that you can look and extrapolate forward. And then finally, I want to talk about the leadership change or the coming leadership change, I should say, across both parties just because it's – where they are right now and the leadership that they've had, it's flat out unsustainable that you will see that continue throughout this next decade. So I think you're going to see sort of a watershed moment where both parties have just a wave of new people who are leading them from top to bottom because you've had one generation that's sort of held on in both parties. So, but we'll get into more to that. So those are the topics for today. We're going to walk through each one of them. Probably, hopefully, it'll be a little bit of a shorter show just because we're talking through that and none of the major news stories this week. So we'll dive right in to that. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is Facebook and my prediction, well, social media too, but my prediction on how these things will work long term. And you can sort of divide 
uh, what we've seen so far. So you had in the 2000s, you had the first real decade of internet dominance. And we, from 2000 to 2010, it was really just about the internet coming of age in a way where it dominated every last single aspect of our lives, where e-commerce finally became a huge thing. Amazon became a driving force in the world eBay and all these others, they were all there driving innovation and driving things forward. So that was the 2000s. And in the 2010s, there was an alteration of this where smartphones, which did start before the 2010s, but truly dominated the this past decade in a way that no other gadget has done. We went from people buying stuff via laptop and doing all their internet stuff on personal computers to now all of personal computers and laptops are virtually obsolete. Yes, people use them every day, but as far as functioning on a day-to-day basis, people are tied to their smartphones unlike any other device that they had. So you can really consider this past decade to be the smartphone decade. It was also when you saw social media take off and dominate everything because people had access to their social media accounts at all times. And so if you've always got a phone with a camera on it, you can always interact and everything. So it's why you saw the rise of Snapchat, Instagram, and other things on the second half of the 2010s. So what's going to happen next? What's going to happen in the 2020s? I think what we're going to see is that some of these major players, specifically the Facebooks of the world who dominate in social media, I think we're going to see their power wane. And it's going to happen for two reasons. They're not going to be able to dominate things as they have for two real main reasons. And the first is that it's going to be harder for them to be the only dominant player in the field. Up until now, Facebook's really just bought out their competitors and and stolen technology or ideas from their competitors in ways that makes them more competitive than they otherwise would be. And what I think you're going to see over this next decade is that they're going to find that harder and harder to do because already people don't like using Facebook across all generations. Basically, Facebook's become a thing where boomers really like it, but every other generation, they have it because they have to have it. And then everybody's moving off these into other networks like Instagram, which Facebook owns, which is important for Facebook, um, but in other places like Snapchat, and now TikTok's popping up, too. And TikTok's interesting in that it's not an American company. It's a Chinese-owned company, and so there's a lot of interesting just data questions that I think you have to raise with that. But regardless, Facebook's facing going to face more competition over the next decade because they can't control all the innovation that's taking place and because people always find new ways to engage with each other. And then more specifically, you see social media has always been about younger generations and what they use. When I first hit college, the transition was happening from MySpace to Facebook. And when that happened, everyone jumped at once. None of us had MySpace anymore. We all jumped over into Facebook at one point. MySpace was the biggest social network in the world, and then Facebook quickly outpaced it just because when I hit college, everyone was on there. If you wanted to keep up with everybody or set up an event, you invited everybody on Facebook. And that's since changed. People don't want to do that. They now use other apps to do that. They may use Facebook for some basic functions, but they're using other apps to keep up with friends or try to create a viral video or other things. And so Facebook's once popularity or coolness edge that they once had is no longer there. And people are constantly looking, next generation or otherwise, of what's going to happen 
next. And the big thing, the interesting thing to me is that you've seen sort of a rise and fall of sort of these anonymous apps where people are engaging anonymously through and building networks that way as opposed to having um, all these different different uh, things like Facebook where you're identified. Uh, I got invited to a new to a newer sort of business side app called Fishbowl. And it's a lot of different professions interacting in various ways, but all anonymously. So it's sort of interesting to watch all these lawyers talk to each other and say all kinds of bad things about their firms that they wouldn't say out in the open. And it also has other industries that are on there, too. Uh, I haven't found it very useful, but it is interesting to see all these different types of people talk to each other and sort of learn what's happening in big law and other places. And... That, that's just kind of where I see things happening with Facebook. I think the example that you want to see here with social media is what's happening in either ride sharing or in food delivery. So both of those industries have just a ton of competition, and I actually have no idea how any of those companies are making any money. I have a little bit more idea how the ride sharing companies are, but I have almost no idea how these food delivery services are making money because everybody I know who uses food delivery, whether it's Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, just you know all of them, everyone, I, what they tend to do is they look for promo codes and deals in order to get free delivery. And then from there, they, they don't pay anything. They just tip the driver. So if the driver gets that tip, they get paid. But I have no idea how the companies themselves are getting paid because it doesn't appear like they're getting a cut from these restaurants. But that's neither here nor there. The point is there's so much competition that no one can get a firm footing and just on the entire or dominate the field at all. It's all these companies competing for each other and competing for customers and that hasn't happened really for Facebook. They faced a few competitors. They beat out MySpace in the beginning. They staved off a bid from Google Plus, who was trying to take over. And Google Plus never really saw any buy-in from anywhere from really just out of sight of Silicon Valley. So you had all these comings and goings. They And then they bought out people like Instagram before they could truly challenge them. So... There's been these challengers that have come along, and Facebook hasn't really had to deal with a major challenge yet. And I think that changes in the 2020s just because everyone looks at Facebook as this behemoth that they don't want to get bought out by anymore. They want to challenge the field because there's more, there's more fun to be had there actually challenging the field as a whole. So that's the business side of it, where I just think there's going to be more competition and it's going to become more like the ride sharing or the food delivery part and less like where Facebook dominates everything that like it is now. The other problem that's going to happen is that Facebook and Google face antitrust pushes from both the left and the right in Congress. At some point, you're going to see both the Department of Justice and states really go to town on all these companies on antitrust and trying to bust them up into a myriad of companies. And this happened early on in Microsoft's life cycle. You saw that in the early 2000s, they got sued for the same reasons. And they ended up, you know, they paid fines in some cases and they were able to work past it in others. But the point is, is that Facebook's going to have to answer for all of this monopolistic behavior that they've had where they've bought out companies like Instagram or WhatsApp and reduced competition in the field. I think when you add that and you tack that on one side and you have competition on the other side, it's going to make it harder for Facebook to just start outright buying their potential challengers like they have been. 
you're going to see them do things like they're going to have to innovate, innovate more. It's just what it comes down to. So you're going to have this disruption that happens on both sides for Facebook, from the government and then from private interests. And so that's going to happen to Google as well. And I think both companies have sort of their corporate structure still sort of aligns pretty cleanly for the government to come in and say, okay, you have all these different services, you have all these different sub-companies, why shouldn't we just take you through a trust-busting exercise and put all these little individual parts of you out as unique companies? So Google could be forced to divest themselves of things like YouTube or Gmail or other things, just everything that makes them the complete Google that they are. They started out as search, but they do a lot more than that now. And the way that their parent company, Alphabet, has structured itself, you could really just take a sledgehammer and break all those individual companies under Alphabet up into their own unique companies. And all of a sudden, instead of one Google, you've got a hundred or you know, however many it would be, just a ton of other smaller companies all doing their own thing. The same thing that could happen potentially to Facebook, where they go from being this conglomerate of many companies to you could break them up into at least three. You'd have Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all broken off into their own unique things. So that's sort of where the pressures are sitting for this next decade. Facebook faces it on both the private side, where they, they I think they will have more competition in the future, but because of this antitrust threat on the other side, they're not going to be able to buy their way out of this. Now, they may try, and I don't know how successful they'll be, but what I do know is that there's a bipartisan pressure on this front. Neither Democrats nor Republicans like what these social media companies are doing, and they're all growing tired of what Silicon Valley is saying on a lot of these fronts. So I think you'll see them get more of a challenge. The only interesting one here to me is, is YouTube and what will happen to it. It's it's sort of remained strong throughout everything here. Could they be their own company? Maybe. It's possible. They have a unique thing where they're not solely a social media network. They actually provide utility to most people because you can upload videos and share them anywhere. So there is some use there. So given how popular people use YouTube for their own personal, basically, TV channels and watching all their own personal things, you're probably going to see something happen there too just because all of these things interact with each other and what Silicon Valley has built with all these different companies is great and it's changed the world. But I think the pressures on it to be better and act better are going to increase as time goes forward. So that's my first major prediction. The first major one that I have is that you're going to see the end of Facebook's dominance over all of tech in general. And you're going to see sort of things break up. And in my column, what I say is I think things will return to sort of the pre-Facebook days when there were just numerous social media sites that you could have used and numerous companies and they were all vying for it and Facebook ended up winning out, I think you're going to see a return to something like that where there's going to be a flood of companies all vying for these different things and people are going to kind of get siloed off into different services. It's kind of what we're seeing with streaming right now. Netflix had sort of this dominant position for a while and then all these other players entered the field once they saw that they could make their own amount of money and Facebook, I mean, Netflix doesn't have as much of a dominant position anymore. I think Facebook's going to face something similar here. They've just been able to exercise sort of a monopoly-like power in order to get to the current state that they are. But that can't last forever. It rarely lasts with any company. So the pressures on both sides are coming for Facebook.
So the next thing I want to talk about in my next prediction is that Donald Trump's going to win re-election, I think. I, I, it's a 50-50 proposition. I think if you just put everything together and ran it through a simulation, sort of like what they do for 538. But I think if you look at how things are setting up, he's going to win re-election. And then the big question after that is what happens post-Trump. The race for 2024 is going to start the day after Trump wins. Well, frankly, it'll it'll begin the day if he either wins or loses, but it will begin in earnest if he wins re-election, because if he wins re-election, then you have to deal with a successful two-term president who, after he leaves office, will not remain quiet. He will still try to impact what happens in the Republican Party, and his impact will be felt for longer than the term that he is in office. So the direction that the Republican Party ends up taking will be interesting to watch post-Trump because all of these people are going to have to deal with the aftermath of him being in office. And what I point to in the column that I have coming out on Monday is the first major thing is his Trump's approval rating. Approval ratings matter when you're measuring electoral politics. And if Trump wins re-election, it's going to be because he was able to get his personal approval rating up in the key states that he needs to win in order to win re-election. And right now, nationally, his his uh, approval rating is up. It normally sits somewhere around 41-42% if you look at 538's tracker and how they weight different things. But in their in their tracker, it's sitting around 42-43%. If you look at Real Clear Politics, they're showing something closer to 44%, hovering just above that. And I think what he really needs to almost lock in a re-election chance is to get to at least 45% nationally. Any bit above that, he gets above that, is fine, and it helps. But he needs to get at to 45% in the real clear politics average. I'm not really sure what it would need to be in 538s. But if he gets there, what that means is that nationally, he's at that rate. But in these individual battleground states, he's going to perform better. So when you have these national approval polls, they factor in the entire country. So it's everybody from California to New York to Florida to Ohio to Texas. It's everybody thrown into one. And why that's important to note is that Hillary Clinton, she won She won more votes than Donald Trump. And she did that by running up the score in these blue states. So if you do that, you're going to get a pile of more votes, but they're not going to be spread out in the right places. So she didn't win a majority of the vote. Now, you hear people talk about how Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and that's true in a sense that she got more votes, but it's not true in that she won a majority of the popular vote. Whoever won 2016 was going to have only a plurality of the popular vote. There's just no other way around that. I think she had something like 48% to Trump's 46. I'd have to go look it up. But in any event, that factors in the entire country. And Clinton didn't campaign very well in the upper Midwest. She did fundraisers in California, New York, and other places trying to expand the map and some potential future purple states, but she didn't do her work in the Midwest. And that's where Trump ran up his victory amount. That's where he gained an edge. And when you start looking at these states, and I think the best one here is Wisconsin because it's a potential tipping point state, meaning if that goes towards one or other candidate, it's likely going to be the state that gives them the presidency. 
Wisconsin was that state. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania technically were that state in 2016, and I think they could be again. And if you look in Wisconsin in particular, Trump's approval rating, nationally it's 44%. In, in Wisconsin, it's reading at 47%. So it's three points higher. The next thing to note about that is that Trump won 47% of the vote, a little above that. There's some percentage points there. He won 47%. So what that means is that his approval rating and what he won are exactly the same. So potentially it doesn't look like he's lost any support in Wisconsin. The second thing to note about that is that in Wisconsin, you know, nationally, if you look at the impeachment polls, it's basically a 45, 48, where it's a 50-50 thing between both sides, where you have 48% supporting it and 47% against it. Those are the national numbers. If you break down Wisconsin and look at them, 52% of the people in Wisconsin oppose impeachment. So Donald Trump's approval ratings are 47%. The opposition to impeachment is at 52 So there's a five-point margin there where there's people who say that they don't approve of Trump, but they also don't want him impeached. And that's sort of an interesting number there to me, that margin there, because it, it suggests that Trump has the capacity to grow his support in Wisconsin and not have to worry about shrinking. And if that's true and he's done a good enough job for these people here, then that means he could actually grow his margin in these states, and it would mean that he his standing there is getting better, which goes, it just, it's weird because it flies against the national narrative. And the reason that that's the case is that you have these big states, places like New York and California, whose vote, who's, who they're waiting in these national polls, it sort of tips things against Trump in these national polls. But what matters are these battleground states, people, these purple states, where it's closer to 50-50, and there are more people likely to vote for him in these states. And so it's a better representation of what's happening across these battleground states. And so you don't get this this uh, false sense that you do on the national polls. Because what really happens is that the national polls mask the weaknesses that Democrats are showing in some of these purple states. They've gained ground in, in a lot of states, but they're also losing it in others, and the national polls can sort of hide that. It's not that anything's rigged. We are a country in which there are more Democrats than there are Republicans. That's just the state of things right now for both parties. And so when you do a national poll, you're going to get more response from them, and that's going to be an accurate reflected thing. But a national poll is not going to tell you what's happening in a battleground state. It just gives you the general feeling across the country. So my thesis on this is that if you use impeachment as sort of a guide and compare it to Trump's approval rating in these states, you can find that almost always in these battleground states, impeachment is underwater pretty seriously. So in Wisconsin, support for impeaching him and removing Trump from office sits at 40%. So that's well underneath what the national average is, which is somewhere between 47 and 48%. So it's only at 40% in the, in Wisconsin, and that's a pretty serious drop that you have to account for. So that means that, you know, Trump's got room to grow in these states and expand his margin. That's good for him, and I do wonder how much Democrats are looking at that. 
But it's also why I think Trump's re-election chances are better than anyone might expect, because what matters is not just his approval rating nationally, that's a, although that's a very helpful number. What matters is what do people think of Donald Trump in these battleground states. And if it doesn't match what we're seeing on the national level or, you know, just what the trends you see in blue states, then there's a potential for his support to be understated in these states. And to some extent, there's always been a split between state polls and national polls, but you don't want to let the biases of one override the other. So it's a thing to it's a thing to look at. Uh, we, obviously, impeachment hasn't happened that often. So using this as a potential gauge of how many Trump voters there could be out there for some of these swing states is an unproven thesis, but it is an idea that I've had as I've studied these numbers, and it's something I'm going to be watching as I move forward because Trump's the, the odds are Trump's going to have a strong economy. The impeachment is short of shoving people into whether or not they support or oppose Trump, regardless of what they think about his approval ratings. And so you've got this potential margin here, and the question is, what's going to happen with that? And we don't really know. I think he's going to win because I think it's showing us some trend lines this far out, but we don't really know ultimately. So that's something to watch going forward. I think it could be very predictive but we don't know. So watch how impeachment moves, especially with the dynamics between the House and the Senate, because if Democrats continue their path where they continue to discredit themselves in this process, I thought it was funny reading some Democrats who were talking about impeachment. They talked about how this was a very important process because they needed to put an asterisk next to Donald Trump's name. And I'm like, well, you know, sure, whatever. That's not very important when you think of it long term because Clinton technically has a asterisk next to his name and everybody loved him once he left office. So, you know, big whoop. Who cares about the historical note that you just pushed in, put on his name? But if that's your if that's your sole goal here, then the irony is, is that there's now an asterisk on the asterisk because Nancy Pelosi is withholding the articles of impeachment, meaning that Donald Trump is not getting his day in court. Now, they can talk about how they want a fair trial all they want to, but that's not the point. They want a rigged trial. That's what they want. That's the only reason you try to do this. And it's, it's just a mess. And so now Democrats are ruining legitimacy of their own process. And I, I don't really care what you think about the substance of Trump's impeachment prospects here. The fact of the matter is is that Democrats are playing so many games here that they're ruining the legitimacy of their own substantive argument here. So now it's just a partisan game. Good luck to them. I don't think it's going to sell in the swing states or the battleground states. There's no evidence that they've done that so far. In fact, Adam Schiff, who, in his committee, they seem to have hurt their case by holding all their hearings. So the more they do this, the more I expect those numbers to drop or to fall into Trump's favor. So that brings me to the third prediction that I have for 2020, and that deals with leadership. And specifically, the major overhaul, in, especially in the Democratic Party, but it'll also happen in the Republican Party as well. And the reason that 
the reason that I know this is coming is that you just look at the ages of the top leaders across both parties, and the only takeaway that you can have is that everybody is far too old to hold some of these offices without some major changes coming in the next decade. Nancy Pelosi, she's in her 70s, and she's People are already questioning whether or not she's got the health levels to stay any longer, past whatever term she's going to have after this. You had Elijah Cummings, who led up a party, who led up one of the committees, I mean, and he passed away this year. You have John Lewis, one of the civil rights icons in Congress in the House, and he just announced that he had stage 4 pancreatic cancer. He's been one of the stalwarts in the House and you have you can just run on down the list in the Senate too. Chuck Schumer, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they're all old senators. They're all in their mid to late seventies. And Bernie Case, he's gonna if he, I think he's coming up on eighty now if I'm if I remember correctly. And then you have Joe Biden, who's already being attacked by his own party for being too old. So you have all these people, and that doesn't even count the people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Supreme Court who are in their eighties. You have all these people across the Democratic establishment who are all in their 70s or older, and they're all from the same generation. They're all holding on to power, and that that's just there's that's just not going to stay that way for this next decade. That will not be allowed to stand. They have to have new blood start taking over. And if you're looking at some of the young people, like you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and her friends. Could they be the next Democratic establishment leaders? Maybe. They're pretty divisive. Could a person like Adam Schiff, who was awful at his job and did everything he could to discredit the entire impeachment process, be the next Speaker of the House? Maybe. I've heard his name thrown around. But the point is this. We're heading into an election year in which you have Donald Trump, you have whoever, with the exception of Pete Buttigieg, just about all the top nominees on the Democratic side are all in their 70s as well. You have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's in her 80s. You have Pelosi and Schumer in their 70s. Basically, the point I'm trying to make is, in 2016, you had the death of Antonin Scalia, which significantly shifted what happened in that race. And now you have, we're entering 2020, and just about all the main characters from 2016 who were old then are still in power now. And when you have this many people all at this age, there's just a non-zero percent chance that somebody's going to have a significant health problem. We've already seen this play out out to some extent with Elijah Cummings and now John Lewis, who are big names and stalwarts in the house. And now Cummings is gone, and Lewis, if he's got stage 4 pancreatic cancer, the prognosis does not look good. Obviously, you pray and wish your best for him. But when you're looking at the political situation here, it's that there's going to be an overhaul one way or another across the top of the Democratic Party. None of these people can stay just because they're too old to hold this for forever. You can't expect all these same people to still hold their same offices at the end of this decade. That's just not going to happen. I mean, it it could. Stranger things have happened. Look at our president. But the odds of that happening are very slim, and it could impact our, our election in 2020. So I think you're going to see an overhaul across the party on the Democratic side just because... There has to be this change. The party has to let youth start coming in and revitalizing its ranks. 
And on the flip side, the same thing is going to happen to the Republican Party. They have to deal, specifically have Trump, who if he wins re-election, you deal with the aftermath of what comes in 2024, because there's no real clear successor to him. Sure, you have Mike Pence as vice president, but even he is not a clear successor because you have Nikki Haley sitting out there. You have Trump's children, Don Jr. in particular, who is popular among the base. And so you have these people who are trying to jockeying and trying to determine what happens to the post-Trump GOP. The Republican Party is younger than the Democratic Party. They certainly have some of their older candidates, but... Overall, if you're looking at leadership to leadership, Republicans are far younger, and so the people who are in current leadership positions, while I don't think a lot of them are going to stay there, especially Kevin McCarthy, it is more likely that you will see them see a smoother transition of power among the Republican ranks than you will in the Democratic side. Because even if Mitch McConnell ends up stepping down eventually, he still has... His he still has people that he could hand the reins of power off to, and there's just more unity on the Republican side of the Senate than there is on any part of the Democratic side. The infighting that is a, that is happening in the Democratic side that you're seeing in the Democratic primaries will eventually happen in Congress, too, because all of these big names have to go. The infighting on the Republican side is a little bit different because it's about determining the direction of a post-Trump Republican Party. And you see a lot of people already jockeying to do that. There's several senators like Marco Rubio, uh, Tom Cotton, and some others who are all taking these various issues and trying to determine a path forward that weaves in this new coalition of Trump voters and tries to keep them and build going forward into the future. So there are different fights happening here. On the Democratic side, it's more generational. On the Republican side, it's more philosophical because you're having to deal with what to do post-Trump. And the thing about Trump is, and what we know will happen, is that once he leaves office, whether it's four years or eight years, he will continue to tweet his opinions out and blast everything that he thinks about what's happening in the party system after he's gone. This will not be a situation like, like George Bush or with Barack Obama, who have remained, for the most part, kept their heads low. Obama has said a few things about the Democratic Party primaries, but he has declined to endorse anyone. So Trump would not follow any of those rules at all. He is more likely to blast, come out with both guns blazing, even though he's leaving office. So those are my three major predictions going into the new year and the new decade. Facebook's dominance is going to fade. Social media's dominance is going to fade. Trump's going to win re-election. And we're on the cusp of a major leadership overhaul, particularly of the Democratic Party, but it'll also happen in the Republican Party once we start figuring out and charting course forward past the Trump era. So those are my big predictions. Make sure to send in yours. I want to hear what your predictions are, both for 2020 and what's going to happen over the next 10 years. I like to read a lot of futurists and hear what they have to say, and I'm curious what you guys think is going to happen yourself. And that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, questions, or feedback, or your predictions, reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. 
Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. And remember, the newsletter is off for the rest of this year. It'll come back, I believe it's the second week in January. So make sure to sign up for that on thebeltwayoutsiders.com, and you'll get the next issue when it comes out in the new year. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. And before I go this week, I'm going to send you out with a very funny play call in the NFL. This one is by Kevin Harlan, and I love these sorts of things. Now, the thing about this call that you have to note is that he was calling the Kansas City versus the the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Chargers. They were playing, and he was announcing that game. And in this particular case, he was calling a field goal that Kansas City was about to they were about to make. And during that, he starts calling the plays for another game, the New England game that was happening that was impacting whether or not Kansas City was going to get a second round bye. And what ends up happening is that Miami ends up being a New e- beating New England, and Kansas City ends up winning their game, which means they get the second round bye, and Harlan is announcing all of this to the viewers and doing a play-by-play call by a game that he's not even attending. So it's really great. I'm going to leave that with you, and we'll see you guys in the new year. Meanwhile, Miami has first and goal down by four. And they're at the New England four-yard line, first and goal. 29 seconds left. Here, Butker kicks the extra point. And Fitzpatrick throws in the end zone. Touchdown, Miami! The Dolphins have just scored. Gasicki, the tight end, got a laser in the back of the end zone on a goal-to-go touchdown pass by Miami quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick to take a lead with 24 seconds to go. The extra point coming up for Miami, leading New England 26-24. to And the crowd now knows it. What a throw by Fitzpatrick. What a touchdown run by Williams on the last weekend of the regular season in the NFL. If the Chiefs win and New England loses, the Chiefs will be the two seed. They'll get the bye and they'll have a home game the next weekend. I'm getting confused. What game are you calling? I'm calling both games. Here is the extra point. The Dolphins have just gone up on New England. 27-24 with 24 seconds to go. CBS is going to send you two checks this week. I think I'm breaking every FCC rule in the book. And will be taken out by Justin Jackson. And he's out to the 25. All right, let's go to New York. Update on New England.